for a family emergency, and this happened on Friday. 
And of course, he calls me as I'm about to go to sleep during the day. And, uh, and I knew when he said, uh, do you have a, uh, this is his little phrase, do you have a, a sermon in your pocket? And I looked and I didn't. And, and I know it's important if he asked me, you know. So he, then he told me about the circumstances and then I thought, I'm immediately, I'm not even listening anymore. I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? And then names are popping up in my head. I'm thinking of Tom and Micah and I'm like then trying to catch up with the conversation and Jim's talking and he's like, well, I could wait till after Sunday. I go, no, 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 no. But then I'm thinking, all right, Mike is going to work now for 10 hours at least today and tomorrow. And so I know I'll bother him. Um, and then I'm thinking, and Tom's at work right now. And Tom knows when I call, not even answer the phone. <laughs> you know, and sure enough, I call Tom at work and Tom goes, oh, you know, because he's sick. Uh, no. no, I'm hiding. No. I'm not he, supposed to answer. Yeah, he wasn't supposed to answer the phone at work, and he's answering. I'm you know. literally around the corner going, I yeah. am. Yeah, we're not supposed to answer the phone at work either. We, we try to pretend it's like a doctor calling us. Yeah. You know. So the more I thought about it, I thought, what would be a way I can keep Micah from asking too many questions today? Oh, I know, I'll have him speak. So we've been having this men's group, and it's gone really well, and uh, people come from far away. And Mike has done a great job. He's been the primary engine that drives the group. And so I started thinking, well, we could talk a little bit about something in Philippians, because that's something we're familiar with. Because you may not know it, but it takes a lot of preparation to even pretend to do this correctly, especially when you're following Jim. I mean, those are some big shoes to fill. So Mike is going to get up and talk a little bit about Philippians in general, but specifically he's going to zero in on something in chapter 2. Tom's going to get up and talk about something that was of particular interest to him in chapter 4, towards the end. And uh, depending on the time and what's going on, then I'm going to just say a few things, also something from chapter 4. It may not be as polished as Jim is normally, but we're excited about the chance to get up and talk. And so let me turn it over to Micah. So it's good to be here this morning. Um, I'll tell you the, the rest of the conversation I had with Alex. He, he, he calls me up at work, and he says in his uh, Mel Brooks voice, you know, so I was thinking that you already have done all this preparation for Philippians. Why don't you go ahead and do the speaking on Sunday? You'll be fine. I didn't see myself. And then we can all go out and eat afterwards. So, so I, I've been assured that this is going to be fine, and it, it'll go smoothly. But Alex has assured me that. Thank you. I'm glad you laughed. I was really hoping that would happen, because otherwise it would have been a, a bad start. So, um, yeah, as Alex mentioned, uh, we've been studying through the uh, Paul's epistle to the Philippians in our Tuesday night men's groups, and we actually just wrapped that up. So it's my goal to try to just do a very brief overview and snapshot. I want to zero in on uh, chapter 2, but in order to do that, I want to go back to chapter 1 and try to get the lead up to that. Paul is in prison in Rome in chapter 1, and he had just received a gift uh, from the Philippian church through their messenger, Epaphroditus, and he starts in chapter 1 giving his salutations, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, Christ Jesus. And uh, he talks about fellowship and unity, which is a big theme throughout this book. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation, and that's the koinonia, the fellowship in the gospel from the first day into now. And we talked a lot about that, uh, the Greek word koinonia, the coming alongside uh, the fellowship, the unity in Christ, uh, which he discusses so much in this book. And then he assures them, uh, having experienced God's sovereignty, being called to Philippi uh, in, in the establishment of the church. You remember the story of the vision of the Macedonian man and uh, the Philippian jailer. So he's experienced this great sovereignty in the establishment of this church. And then he confirms to them, that God who has started a good work in you will complete it. 
So he gives them that reassurance, that preservation uh, of the saints. And then he catches them up with uh, what's going on in Rome there. He talks about his situation and how he's been in prison. But he says that he doesn't want you to be concerned because his circumstances have turned out to the furtherance of the gospel. So God has used his situation and actually uh, made the gospel go forth from it. Uh, with his imprisonment and his bonds, others having witnessed this and his boldness have therefore become more bold themselves. He said, uh, uh, some of them are, are preaching Christ out of uh, godly means and, and with the proper motive. And then on the other hand, there are those that do it for selfish reasons as well. And he focuses in on not the motives, but that the fact that Christ is preached and therein he rejoices. And then he says uh, in uh, verse 20 here, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he says the famous verse, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So then he, he talks about his uh, dilemma uh, as far as he knows to depart and be with Christ is far better for him, but is needful for him to, be, to remain and to be with the uh, Philippian church for their benefit, to minister to them. And from there he stems into kind of what he's leading into into chapter 2, and that is the personal conduct. Verse 27 he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's really kind of a, the lead into what I want to look at in chapter 2. This personal conduct, he's going to give us uh, what a Christian looks like, uh, what we are to embody to be Christ-like. And he does that by giving us some lists, and then he's going to give us the great example of Christ's incarnation. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning, is that example I want to go through that and pick out several attributes of it. And I really want to kind of look at it in two different ways. Uh, the first, the way that Paul intended it, the reason here, that it is an example for us to follow. So I want to look at it from a personal application standpoint. And the other avenue I want to approach it to is just the incarnation itself and understanding God's sovereignty uh, with the incarnation, so the rich theology that it is. So we want to be able to understand the personal application part, but we don't want to lose sight of the uh, the theology and uh, what God has accomplished then, because it's, it's an amazing passage here. All right, so we're going to jump into it. I'm going to start in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. This is Paul's hope. This is his joy. This is what he's looking for in the, the Philippian church. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, unity in spirit, intent on one purpose. There's a singularity there. He wants them to be of the same body, one body coming together in unity in Christ Jesus. That's why we give so much, uh, put so much emphasis on doctrine and context uh, so that we have that single unity. Intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here he gets to the main point that he's driving to. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I think that, that verse there, that phrase there, is, is the whole purpose of this epistle. To have the Philippians embody the likeness of Christ. To reflect Christ's example. Have this attitude, have this mindset, have this mind, I think the King James says, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when he says grasp there, he's talking about clutched or held on to. He's saying that when Christ became flesh, he did not continue to hold on to the glory which he had. That's, that's what he let go of. He, he didn't cease to become God. He was still God and, and he was just in, in flesh. So that's what we want to look at first. Uh, let's read it here. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's the first Christ-like attribute that I want to look at, the attribute, the Christ-like example of emptying self or self-denial. And we have this picture here in the incarnation of Christ of him emptying himself. And I want to just take a look at that first, and then we'll look at the application part. So how did Christ empty himself? Uh, let's take a look at John 17. This is uh, the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all who you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that ye may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That is the way in which Christ has emptied himself, self-denial. He left the glory of his previous stage and became flesh. Glory with the angels in eternity past, leaving that state, coming to earth to be treated by men spit upon and mocked. It's a 180 degree difference to go from that type of glory and emptying yourself to being on earth with men. From being in a state of glory in heaven and to what good can come from Nazareth. So that's, that's the first example of Christ uh, that we are to emulate. The example of self-denial. The example of emptying to self. Uh, so now I want to look at uh, that personal example in Luke 9. How does that apply to ourselves? Luke 9. And we're going to read... Verse 23, and this is Jesus talking. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save him. So, if we are going to follow Christ, the first thing that he lists that we must do is deny self. The same way that Christ had emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, that's what we are to emulate if we are to follow Christ. We are to deny ourselves. So that's number one, self-denial, emptying yourself, selflessness. And let's go back to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And he had just mentioned the, uh, the selflessness in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's, that's exactly what Christ accomplished with the incarnation. All right, so have the, I'm going to start back at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. That's number two. Selflessness was number one, and this one involves service. First one was about ourselves, diminishing ourselves, and then this one is about serving others, uh, taking on the form of a bondservant. So let's look at that one. What is Christ's example of being a servant? 
We're going to look at uh, Matthew 20, 26 through 28. Matthew 20. Matthew 20, 26 through 28. I'll read, I guess I'll read in 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentile Lord is over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whosoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whosoever wishes to be first among you will be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ came to serve. He came and emptied himself, and he came with the purpose to serve others. How do we uh, emulate that? What's our command to emulate Christ's example of service? Uh, Let's look at Matthew chapter 12. Actually, I'm sorry. We're just going to look at one more passage of Christ's example here uh, in the suffering servant. So this is another example of uh, uh, how Christ is the servant through the prophet Isaiah here quoted in Matthew 12. And I'll just read this, uh, verse 17. This was to fulfill that which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Another example of Christ as the servant, the suffering servant. Now let's take a look at that uh, example of how we are to emulate this servitude. And that is in John chapter 13. Let's look at John 13. John chapter 13. And we're going to uh, start at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, And taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know that what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I do to you. Truly, truly, I say unto you, a slave is not greater Slave or servant, as it's translated in the King James. A slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So we are to emulate Christ's example of service uh, as he laid out here in the example of, of feet washing. So, number one, emptying the self. Number two, an attitude of service. Let's go back to uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll pick up the third one. Okay. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's number three, humility, the third Christ-like example that we are to emulate, humility. Let's look at uh, how Christ was humble, and we're going to do that in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 and verse 28. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. I'm reading in verse uh, 25 here, and I'll just read through to 28. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the, the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal him. 
Come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Humble in heart. Christ, being selfless, being a servant, was also humble in doing so. And that's the third quality we are to emulate. It's often, well, somewhat easy to, to be selfless and to help others, um, but a lot of times we don't have an attitude of humility about it. I know, for example, with uh, Josiah and Thad and I, we sometimes have this running joke that, oh, I, I helped him out, I'm earning some jewels for my crown. And that's not a very humble attitude, uh, Christ-like attitude, so we should probably stop that. But... <laughs> But yeah, the idea here is that we are doing those with humility and not with boasting. If we are to boast, we are to boast in the Lord only, not in any of our accomplishments. So, so let's look at our example of humility that we're called to in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 4. Whosoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right there it is. Humility. That's how we are to approach God, through humility, as the humbleness of a child. And we see that with Christ's example, and we see that here. Humbleness is what is required to approach God. All right, so we've got emptiness of self. Self-denial, an attitude of serving, and then an attitude of humility about that. Let's go back to Philippians and pick up on the, uh, uh, the fourth and last quality here, Philippians 2. I'm going to read from verse 5 again. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. By becoming obedient, that's the fourth and last Christ-like quality we are to emulate in this example that Paul gives us of the Incarnation. Obedience. So let's look at... Uh, how Christ was obedient. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that ye do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do with the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Christ's nourishment, he says here, was obedience to God the Father. And that is the example that we are to emulate, obedience in Christ, even the obedience to death. Let's, ver let's also look at this uh, next example of Christ's obedience in Matthew chapter 26. And verse 37 to 39. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here's Christ knowing that the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him for the transgressions uh, of, of all the believers, and, and he is grieved to the point of death, and yet he says, yet not my will, but thine. 
that obedience to the Father regardless of the circumstance. So how are we commanded to emulate this obedience? Let's look at John uh, chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Now this is a, a verse we all know. If you love me, keep my commandments. Simple command. If you love God, you are to follow in his commandments. So, in review, we have four different attributes that Christ gives us that we are to emulate in the incarnation. Emptiness of self, self-denial, a serving attitude, an attitude of humility, and then obedience to God the Father. So, certainly, it's easy to think about those things and say, you know, I understand those commands, but how can I, how can I do that? How's that possible? I know myself. I know that I don't have this attitude of humility that we're talking about. I know I'm not obedient in this way. I know that I'm not selfless. I'm selfish. Like T.O., I love me some me, right? <laughs> A football reference. So it's natural to look at that and say, how can we possibly do that? How can we accomplish that? How can we obey Christ in this way? So I want to take a, actually stay in the epistle of Philippians here, and I think we can answer, try to answer that question. Let's go to the last chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 4. Actually, before we, let's just pause there. Before we go to uh, Philippians chapter 4, I do want to look at one other thing. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. And the reason I want to pull this up is because I want to look at the contrast uh, between the, the, these attributes that we're t- supposed to emulate and, and the qualities of the ungodly here. Second uh, Timothy, and we want to be in chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. I just want to bear in mind as we read this, the first thing that Christ did in this example was to empty himself. That's the very first thing he did, to empty himself to be selfless. The first thing God commands us to do if we're to follow him is to deny ourselves. Let's see what, what, it, what it says here. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. That is the exact opposite of Christ's likeness. If we are left to our natural state, this is what we'll be. The first thing we'll be doing is loving ourselves. So I want to just read these examples here and just kind of get a picture of the exact opposite uh, of where, what men are apart from Christ. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Talked about obedience. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossip, without control, brutal, haters of of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All the things that we talked about, boastful in there, we talked about humility, the exact opposite attributes that we're talking about from a a Christ-like example here. Holding to a form of godliness, although they deny the power, deny its power, avoid such men as these. Okay. I just want to get the contrast there so we kind of understand the difference between a Christ-like believer, and the, uh, the retrobate. Now let's go back to uh, the question that we had. How do we accomplish these things? How do we do these things? How do we follow through? How do we please God? Uh, because if we examine ourselves uh, and we're being honest, we realize that uh, I'm not selfless in this way. I'm not, I don't, I'm not obedient in this way. Uh, I'm not serving others in this Christ-like example. So let's go to, um, first of all, let's, let's look at Philippians chapter 4. And we're just going to first look at an example to know that it's possible. All right, Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at uh, verse 15. Now ye Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concern, concerning giving and receiving but ye only. 
For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but a desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul wasn't necessarily looking for the gift. He was thrilled with the fruit that the Philippian church was bearing in giving this gift to him, as they did on multiple occasions. So what does he, what does he tell us about this gift? Let's read uh, uh, the next verse. What does he tell us about this fruit? But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which are sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing to God. So with this gift, they embodied all the sacrifices that we just talked about, the sacrifice of uh, humility, of uh, selflessness, of uh, obedience. Giving is an act of obedience. It's an act of worship. So they accomplished this. So we know it can be done. The question is how? How is it done? And to answer that, I want to go back to chapter 1 of Philippians here, and then I'll be done. We're trying to answer the question, how do we please God? How do we bring forth this fruit that he has commanded us in the example of Christ? Verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus unto the glory and praise of God, which are by Christ Jesus. Those fruits of righteousness that we just discussed are not of our own merit. It does not say that you are filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by our own ability to determine, by our own ability to establish. No, these fruits are by Christ Jesus, unto the praise and glory of God. So, how are we able to be, offer a sacrifice, obedience, selflessness, humility? How are we able to do those things that, in order that they are well-pleasing to God? The only way that we can please God is if it is through the Son in whom He is well-pleased. The Father says to the Son, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. That is the only way we can please God is through the work of Jesus Christ in us. I'll read it one more time. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, unto the glory and praise of God. Therefore, He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. I give my time over to Tom. I'd like to pick up kind of where Micah left off, and I'm only going to ask you to go to one part of the Bible, and the rest of it I will just read from what I have here, assuming things go well. So if you would go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 14. <laughs> Reading to you from the ESV. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble... Verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And I'd like to point out there that the gifts that Paul is talking about are gifts that went from the Philippian church to Paul. It's not necessarily being done to a church, to God, or something like that. This is a, something from the church of Philippi to Paul. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And here Paul is emphasizing that giving is better than the gift. Now we do need the gift in order to make it happen. But still the giving of it is something more important because Paul says here, it's not that he seeks the gift, but he seeks the fruit that increases to your credit. So giving is better than the gift. Uh, continuing on to verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
And then here comes the key of what I want to talk about today. He describes the gifts as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul describes the gift that was given to Paul as fragrant and acceptable to God, an offering to Paul from the church was somehow pleasing to God, and it is described as fragrant, a fragrant aroma. Now we compare God to that to God watching the giver, and we look and see that, that clearly God has got his eye on the person doing the giving and what's in their heart. Now if we go back to an earlier text here, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now the earth has just been flooded. There's no wild game to hunt. The vegetation, you know, has been severely damaged, whatever little is left of it. Food is at a premium. So what does Noah do? He starts sacrificing to God from what few animals and birds he has with him in his stash. That's sacrificial giving. Mm -hmm. There's not much else to give, and Noah's got to be thinking, how are the eight of us going to be eating here for the next few months, given that the waters have just receded? And yet, he sacrifices to God. Verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and notice it was the aroma that God smelled, it wasn't necessarily the gift. It's not like Noah's throwing bird parts up in the sky or something. It's the aroma of the, the act of giving. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Amen. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. <clears throat> Moving to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 6. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut into pieces. Seven and the sons of Aaron, the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, which is a pleasing aroma to the Lord." This is not just a gift, but it is a sacrificial gift because what is being given is the animal without flaw. You're not giving God any trash. You're given the best of what you have, sacrificial giving. Continuing with verse 13, But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He shall tear it open by its wings but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, and a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Continuing in 2 Corinthians, this is chapter 2, verse 12. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, now, if you don't know your Roman history, the Roman triumph was quite a celebration. It was done in Rome, often with a returning general who had just come back from a great victory, and they would throw a party, a party that would sometimes last days, if you can imagine a parade lasting days. Uh, part of this parade was a, a big visual presentation, lots of colors, lots of people, lots of sound, and also part of it was incense. There was incense and flowers everywhere because the smell of the event is part of the, the effect, part of what you're trying to, uh, to get people to remember. Incense and flowers everywhere. A fortune was spent on this. This is the Roman triumph, which the people in Second Corinthians are quite familiar with. And yet it says here, 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So they know he's referring to something as great as the Roman triumph. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. That's us. We are the aroma of Christ. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Now, when an ox is sacrificed, the aroma arises and heads up. When Christ is sacrificed, we are now being described here in 2 Corinthians as the aroma of Christ. For we are the aroma of Christ of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, not such a good fragrance. And to the other, it's a different fragrance, a fragrance from life to life. But in either case, the raising from the dead from the sacrifice of Christ is again described as an aroma. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here Christ, just plain as day, is described as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We have just seen the aroma of Christ be attributed to us, and here in Ephesians, Christ's atonement on the cross is described as a fragrant offering. And the final one I got for you, Romans 12, chapter 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sacrificial giving of ourselves, and that is giving of our bodies, as a living sacrifice, and that is described as a spiritual worship. If Jesus never goes to the cross, there's no sacrifice. There's no salvation. We're hopeless. But he does go to the cross. He gives his body, and we are the aroma of that. And let me finish up by returning to where I was at the start. In Philippians 4, he says in verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Look how Paul has taken that gift from the church and equated it with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. When you think about the giving you do, whether it's giving of your time, giving of your knowledge, giving of your heart, writing a check, it's all spiritual worship. And here, it's equated with an aroma that is pleasing to God, just as God was pleased with the aroma from the death of Christ. Next time you think about giving, this is more than just giving, more than just giving a tip, more than a trinket, more than money. You're actually doing spiritual worship, and it's an aroma that God loves. That's a good thing to do. That's all I got to say. Now, Jim did tell me that uh, coming up in the next few weeks, he's going to do a video on this. So it didn't make sense for me to sit here and bang away on this too hard because, first of all, he can do it better than me. And let's let him do that. And second of all, I didn't even want to get too busy up here with three of us preaching. But look forward to that coming up in the next two, three, four weeks, somewhere like that. Uh, Jim expects to take this very subject and expand it and do a, a video on the Internet. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing that. Alex? That was interesting. Moved along well. A lot of things that they said kind of tie in, which it should. It's the same author, Paul. Turn over to uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to just isolate on one little thing. I'm probably going to have to adjust this a little bit. I, by the time I got done, I wasn't sure if this was 10 minutes or an hour. But uh, 
Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now that's a mouthful right there. I want you to focus on a few things here as we talk about this. The little phrase, rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 4 and in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. And right here, we're going to bump into the whole paradox that was alluded to by Micah. How do we do this? How do we do any of this? None of this is normal. I remember I read something in school once and was talking about the ethical requirements of the kingdom of heaven are impossible. And at the time, I'm an Arminian. I'm trying to swallow that. The ethical requirements, you know, I'm believing in free will and you know, the ethical requirements of the kingdom of heaven are unattainable by us. And so if all you really got is you trying really hard, you're stuck immediately, which explains why a lot of people are crazy that are claiming to be Christians because they're trying to live in two worlds. They're trying to live in God's, the world of God's assurance and somehow the fact that I'm not, I can't do that, you know. So we're going to discuss that a little bit. The idea of rejoicing in the Lord and being anxious for nothing is actually related. It actually is the whole way he kicks off this section. So here's the thing. It's really easy to be anxious. It's normal to be anxious. And everybody has a different trigger. Um, I can get anxious watching a replay of a game. Now let's think about that. I know the outcome. And, I'm, and I could feel, oh, that's if he had just tackled him there. And, you know, and I'm like, this is really crazy. You're getting anxious about something. And it's almost like you think the ending's going to be different. That's pretty crazy. But that's how normal it is. Uh, so in verse 6, that word anxious. The Greek word actually means something about being distracted. Or you have a kind of a divided mind. You can't really focus on maybe what you're wanting to focus on. You're you're being distracted. In verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. I want to talk about that a second. Guarding your hearts. God's peace will guard your hearts. What does that mean exactly? That word for guard, which I'm not going to bother to pronounce, it was a first century term for high security. It was uh, denoted a kind of setting a watch or a standing guard or keeping something securely locked. That's the plan that God has for you. That's what he's going to do for you. So the progression in Philippians 4, 4 through 6, as you're looking at it, and it's real simple. All you got to do is do this. First, you got to rejoice in the Lord. Then you display your gentleness. That's assuming you have any to display. Gentleness is a kind of an idea of contentment, a kind of a generosity of spirit, Graciousness with humility, that sort of encompasses it. Okay, so we're rejoicing in the Lord. We display our gentleness. Oh, we're anxious about nothing. Pray with thanksgiving. I've already failed, you know, all of this. And then it says the peace of God, which incidentally is beyond all understanding, uh, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, this is kind of like what Micah was saying. How, do, how does this occur? I mean, realistically, how does this occur? Because this week, we're going to get anxious about something. I might get anxious about something before today is over. Who knows? You know, when I spoke to Jim Friday, he was feeling anxious. That's normal. Jesus got stressed, you know, very stressed in the garden. Maybe in his own way, more stressed than any of us have ever been. I mean, he had every reason in the world beyond what we could even comprehend. But he wasn't just like, this is cool. I got it. No, it's stressful. Life is stressful. So how does this occur? It's not in our nature to do any of this. Thankfully, I think I have something that you can take home with you that's worthwhile. And it all kind of gets back to that word, that word that we talk about a lot here, and it's even on the sign out front. Do you all know what that word is? Grace. Well, yeah. Sovereignty. Yes, grace too. 
Here's the idea. When he, uh, by the way, this word rejoice, it, it's a motif all through Philippians. It really picks up in chapter 3, verse 1. I counted it. It seemed like it's used like about eight times before we get to 4-4. Four, four. So it is a theme running through the book. This is a guy in jail who has been beaten and shipwrecked and treated badly by Christians and non-Christians, so-called Christians. This is not a guy living the abundant life, you know. This is not the Joel Osteen guy. This is a guy who's really, in every way, had it rough. And he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. So I was like, okay, how do we do that? The idea of rejoicing in the Lord is used, I think, uh, differentiating it from rejoice in God as Savior. I mean, that is something you can do, but that's not the idea here. Or rejoice in uh, Jehovah God and the, the all-powerful God. That's all good. But rejoice in God being the Lord is a specific thing that puts us into a different sphere. And the realm that that puts us in is where a believer's joy and resulting peace can actually exist. The sphere of being in the Lord, rejoicing in the fact that God is the Lord, is unrelated to life circumstances. See, the first thing we do wrong is that we're attached to our circumstance to such a degree we can't... Someone says, oh, rejoice in the Lord, and we're like, oh, yeah, I would, but, you know, I got this going on. And it's really hard not to be there. It's, it's impossible, really, by yourself. This is what everybody's trying to get to. Believe it or not, this is why so many people are... I mean, I'm going back to my work stuff. Why people are so drawn to these pain pills. They really give you a kind of a sense of ease. That's the big draw. That, that stuff works better than almost anything out there. And it's hard. When you get people to stop taking that stuff, they start feeling the world creeping in. And it's tough. It's really tough. And this is, as some of these people even tell you, in my case, it's not even that I have pain. But it, it kind of makes life feel less painful. Because life is painful. Anyway, the idea of being in the Lord is unrelated to life circumstances. It's related to the unassailable, unchanging relationship we have with God. Now think about that. That's the source of peace. The source of peace is not based on us grappling with our problems. That's not a source of peace. The source of peace is that we're tied into a relationship with God who is unmoved by any circumstance. He is behind every circumstance. No matter what's going on, he's had you in his hand from the beginning to the middle to the end. I love that one scene in the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, and Lois is hanging from a helicopter, and she falls, and she's flying through the air, ah, you know, and Superman goes up, and he grabs her, and he looks at her, and he goes, I got you. And she goes... Well, who's got you? <laughs> well, no one's got God. No one has God. God's up there without a wire, and he's fine. And the foundation of our learning to trust God and see God that way, that is the beginning of you seeing your problems in a different context. We're never promised our problems are going to go away, but we can see our problems in a different light, a different context, and by comparison and context, it's like, oh, okay. Well, no matter what happens here, even if he kills me, I'll be all right. That's a great place to get to. And it doesn't happen because I always fall into, well, if I just didn't have this going on, then, then my life would be great, you know. No, that's not the way it works. Your bad circumstance is really like God's appointment for you. And... Once you can begin to get a grasp on that, even a little baby step changes everything. So, the sphere of rejoicing in the Lord, in the fact of God being the Lord of the universe, and the fact that we have this relationship with God, is so powerful because as the Lord, all things are under God's supreme control. Everything. That's why he, he talked about a bird falls to the ground. I know all about it. How much more do I care about you? We know we're on good terms with God because the New Testament goes to great pains to explain this to us. Romans 5.1, just this little uh, 
declaration. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has reconciled the unreconcilable bridge between us and him. It's not contingent on us fixing something and making it better. He's fixed it. We have peace with God. So now we have the ultimate sovereign of the universe, the Lord, who is in complete control of every circumstance, and he's made peace with us, and we're his children, and he loves his children, and he differentiates between his children and everybody else. You, you went over a verse that, you know, there's so much in all these verses, but the fact that God appointed everybody to be saved, that's saved. So this is not an accident. It's all, it all works out beautifully. So God has made peace with us. So all things are then ordained by him to minister to our ultimate good. If we have a minute, we'll do Romans 8. All things work together for good. Can anything separate us? We're given all the reassurance in the world that it's not about circumstances. I don't know where this phrase came from. I actually tried to, I saw it in a book. I tried to find that it's so old. Our disappointments are but God's appointments. It's on purpose. It's not like, gee, if only, you know, if my life hadn't turned out this way, there was never a moment where it couldn't have turned out that way. There is no what if in God's universe. There is no, gee, if only, mm -mm. you know, if she hadn't done that, then I would, no, that's a waste of time. It was exactly done that way on purpose. And, uh, you know, it takes away a lot of excuses that I have, you know. I think the first time uh, the idea of our disappointments are but his appointments, in so many words, that's kind of what happened in Genesis uh, 50, verse 20, when Joseph's explained to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God has made a universe that everything turns out to be his will, evil. He uses it. He's not the source of it, but he uses it. So... The key to us grabbing onto this, rejoicing in the Lord, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And God's peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And you go, well, I don't know if I understand that. Well, you're not supposed to. It says it's beyond your understanding. It's beyond my understanding. I mean, just because you can talk about it means you under, you know, I don't fully understand how does that, does that work. How could it? So we delight, we focus, we have confidence in the fact that God is reigning and ruling in the universe, and it puts all your troubles in a different context. So turn over to Romans 8, and we're going to finish up. Paul drives this point home again. Oh, I can't help it. We'll start with verse 29. No, we're going to start with verse 28. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's his elect. That's us. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Now, he asks a series of rhetorical questions, seven rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question means the answer is yes. It's an obvious answer. And these rhetorical questions drive us to some truths. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who? Who could? Nobody. All right, I shouldn't have answered. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? Substitute your problems in there. Nakedness, peril, sword. My problems don't sound so bad when I look at this. He didn't say, this will never happen to you again. You're living the good life. No. He's saying this can't separate you from what's really important and what holds your life together and puts your problems into context and somehow can cause you to be relatively worry-free when anybody else would be having a nervous breakdown 
because it's beyond our understanding. And if it's not working yet for you, I think it will. But then again, that's God's appointment for you. Who am I to say? For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A created thing has no ability to thwart God's purpose. And God created everything. Yes, God is the only uncreated thing. You try explaining this to most people and they go, no, what? It's like hard to even, it makes my brain hurt to think about God always there, uncreated. That's the way it works. So, here are the truths we get from this whole section here. Number one, God is for us. Number two, no one or nothing can be against us. Three, he freely gives us all things. Four, he has justified us. Five, Christ at God's right hand intercedes for us. He prays for us. And by the way, sitting at God's right hand means he's at the, that's the power of God, his right hand. And number six, we cannot be separated from his love. Is there anything this isn't covering? How about that bill you can't pay this month? You're going to be all right. Now, it may not be fun. Paul doesn't promise fun, but you're going to be okay. So this is the best news you're ever going to hear. Incredible news. This is fantastic. When life starts creeping up on you, go to the Word of God. Read what it has to say. Go to Romans 8. Go to Philippians. Go anywhere. Uh, it's fantastic stuff. Rejoice and don't be anxious about anything.